שיעור מספר 179, אתר הסנובל, Competing and Completing Perspectives, יהושע יחזקאל and our idolatrous forefathers. The books of Melachim and Yirmiyahu describe generation after generation of prophets who speak out against the corrupt ways of Am Yisrael and time and time again threaten them with destruction and exile. They describe an ongoing decline in the morality of Am Yisrael. They describe idolatry and incest and murder and rampant corruption among the great kings of Yehuda and the nation they lead. By the time we're through reading these texts about the abhorrent behavior of the nation, uh, a behavior that's not relatable to us as readers, the reading experience might make one wonder why God doesn't just get rid of them and start over again. It becomes apparent that there's no way around the situation getting bad enough to warrant absolute destruction so that we can make way for rebuilding from scratch in these utterly hopeless conditions. Yirmiyahu describes B'nai Israel transgressing the most basic tenets of the covenant with Hashem. One example of very many is brought in Yirmiyahu chapter 7, verse 9, in source 1, in Zayin Tet. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? They've gone against everything in the covenant. And more than any other, Yirmiyahu, the prophet Yirmiyahu, represents the difficult, frustrating job of the biblical prophet. He begins his prophecy 40 years before the destruction of the temple, with devastation and exile looming imminent. He prophesies at a point of no return, as opposed to other biblical prophets who give the nation hope. When even full and real repentance doesn't have the power to stop the process that's already underway, a process that could no longer be avoided, the process toward destruction. The only hope at this point is to pick up the pieces and start over after the disastrous results of complete destruction brought about by so many generations that betrayed God. The situation is so bad, and the people are so corrupt, that surely they deserve what they get. And then we get down on the ground on Lil Tisha B'Av, just a few days from now, and we read the book of Eicha, authored by the very same Yirmiyahu, describing the very same story. Seemingly, finally, the nation gets what it deserves, but Yirmiyahu suddenly presents another perspective compassionate and mournful toward the nation. The kings and the priests that Yirmiyahu mourns in the book of Eicha are the very same that were leading the nation in their corrupt ways, as we see depicted in Yirmiyahu and in Melachim. And the nation is the same immoral, stubborn nation described in such abhorrent terms in those other biblical chapters. Those same, that same nation that made us wonder why God holds out as long as he does before destroying Jerusalem and exiling the nation. So it's a fascinating study in perspectives, in taking each perspective and describing it to the most extreme degree. One perspective is that of a corrupt nation that deserves to be punished, and the other is the perspective of a suffering nation that deserves the compassion of the prophet. This is demonstrated in multiple parallels between the book of Yirmiyahu and the book of Eicha, and especially apparent in Yirmiyahu's own lamentations in Eicha over his adversaries. Yirmiyahu is sent to deliver God's message to the nation and to its leaders as a means of reaching the nation. And in the very first chapter of Yirmiyahu, he targets, his target audience is described to him by God in great detail. If you look at source one in your source sheets, in Yirmiyahu Perak Aleph, and behold, I have made you today a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall against the whole land, against the kings of Yehuda, its princes, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says Hashem, to deliver you. Throughout Yirmiyahu, they, indeed, all of these groups are mentioned over and over again by name, and they battle against the prophet's tireless attempts to plead with the nation to repent. 
As we see, for example, in chapter 2 of Yirmiyahu, if you have your Tanakhs, it's not on your source sheet, but in chapter 2 of Yirmiyahu, in verse 8, in Bet, Perak Bet Pasukhet, the priests did not say, where is Hashem? Those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied to Baal. And in verse 26, that appears in source 3 on your source sheet, as a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed, them, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets. So throughout Yirmiyahu, the prophet addresses the nation and their leadership. But in Eicha, these very same groups become the object of the prophet's lamentations, as demonstrated in a spattering of select verses in source 4, where we see in verse 2, he has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. In verse 9, her king and princes are among the nations and her prophets obtain no vision from Hashem. In verse 20, should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of Hashem? Yirmiyahu doesn't only lament the nation and he doesn't only lament those who are innocent in the nation, but the leadership that battles him tooth and nail. This leadership, if you read the book of Yirmiyahu, puts him in jail, they beat him, they throw his scrolls in the fire, they throw him into a mud pit, they nearly kill him for his messages to God. So one biblical text offers us the perspective of a corrupt nation and the other of a suffering nation. According to one perspective, the nation deserves to be punished. And according to another, the nation and its leaders deserve the compassion of the prophet. When reading each one of these two perspectives, it's difficult because it's so whole and because it's so complete to acknowledge that another outlook is possible. But it's crucial that we do. If all we see is Eicha describing a nation who suffered humiliation and destruction by the hands of their own God, then we're provided no perspective on the process that led there. And this seemingly unwarranted retribution makes no sense. But other biblical books, other biblical texts can give us context by providing other perspectives on the story. This type of reading of varying perspectives in the biblical text that has to be pieced together by the reader is prevalent throughout Tanakh. It's a surround sound reading. In surround sound, multiple audio signals, the audio signal is split into multiple channels so that different information, different sounds come from various places. But together they resonate all the more powerfully. So the biblical text demands work of us as readers to piece together information from various texts to better understand the resonant biblical message. Another example of this surround sound reading is the description of B'nai Israel while they're enslaved in Egypt. It's a story we all know. And when we read Sefer Shemot as a continuation of Sefer Bereshit, we go from the forefathers who worshipped God to the suffering and enslavement of Sefer Shemot. B'nai Israel, the descendants of the moral forefathers who represent this unyielding belief in the one true God, they descend to Egypt at the end of Sefer Bereshit, and that descent is described again at the beginning of Sefer Shemot, giving us a sense of continuity. This encourages the perception that B'nai Israel were faithful to God. But is this true? Who were B'nai Israel in Egypt? How are they characterized by the biblical text? So if you open up your Tanakh to Sefer Shemot, to the first chapter of Sefer Shemot, let's take a look only at the Pesukim that give us a glimpse into the character of B'nai Israel and answer the question, who were B'nai Israel in Egypt? How are they characterized? There aren't many of these Pesukim, so this shouldn't take long. But we see in those Pesukim that conditions gradually get worse for the nation throughout the text in the process leading up to Yitziat Mitzrayim. So let's look at verse 13 in chapter 1, in Perak Aleph, Pasuk Yud Gimel. The Egyptians imposed ruthlessly hard labor upon B'nai Israel, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor in the ruthless tasks that they imposed on them. Skip down to verse 22 to Pasuk Kafbet. 
Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. This description, the description in Shemot is the description of a suffering nation. And this description is reinforced in chapter 2 in Perak Bet, verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. Ben Israel groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. Until finally, God decides to redeem them in chapter 3, verse 7 in Parakimel, Pasuk Zayin. Then Hashem said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their oppressors. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. And if you scroll down to verse 16, Moshe is commanded, go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Hashem, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Yitzchak, and of Yaakov, has appeared to me, saying, I have given heed to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. I declare that I will bring you up out of the misery of Egypt to the promised land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. In chapter 4, Perak Dalet, verse 31, the nation's reaction to God's message is one of faith. The people believed. And when they heard that Hashem had given heed to the Israelites and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Although, later on, famously, in chapter 6, verse 9, when B'nai Israel's suffering increases, they stop listening. But the verse is very clear, the pasuk is very clear that this is not a negative judgment, but they stop listening due to their suffering. Moshe told this to B'nai Israel, but they would not listen to Moshe because of their broken spirit and their hard work. Those are more or less the verses that describe B'nai Israel, the character, the question of the character of B'nai Israel throughout the process leading up toward Yitziat Mitzrayim. The only other time that B'nai Israel are described, and the only time that they're described in an active role throughout this process, is in chapter 12, verse 28, in Perak Yudbet, Pasuk Afchet, after the ninth plague, when Moshe commands them to take a lamb for the Pesach offering, the verse describes, B'nai Israel went and did just as God had commanded Moshe and Aaron. So the text in Shemot does not provide a lot of information about B'nai Israel's character or behavior in Egypt. The story focuses instead on the interaction between God and Egypt, God and Paro, through Moshe, with B'nai Israel in the background. And while God decides to redeem B'nai Israel, he doesn't do so for their merit, but for two entirely different reasons. And these reasons are described explicitly in Shemot, and we just read them, we read them earlier in Perak Gimel, in chapter 3, first in verse 7, then Hashem said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their oppressors. Indeed, I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them from Egypt. And later in verse 16, when Hashem says to Moshe, go and assemble the elders of Israel and tell them Hashem, the God of your ancestors, the God of Avraham, of Yitzchak, and of Yaakov, has appeared to me saying, I have given heed to what has been done to you in Egypt, and now I want to come and redeem you from Egypt and bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. The explicit reasons brought in the text in Shemot for redeeming B'nai Israel from Egypt are, first of all, God's promise to the forefathers, And second of all, God's moral position on helping an oppressed, suffering nation. This idea is emphasized in Source 8 and your source sheets by the prophet Amos in chapter 9, verse 7, where the prophet says to the nation, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, says Hashem? Did I not bring Israel up from the land of Egypt? and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir. It's not the morality of B'nai Israel that warrants them redemption, nor is it their unwavering belief in the God of their forefathers. It's God's moral position to redeem an oppressed nation. And just as he redeemed Plishtim from their oppressors and Aram from their oppressors, so too he redeemed B'nai Israel for their suffering. 
So Shemot's perspective on B'nai Israel's character in Egypt is not explicit, since the descriptions of B'nai Israel in Egypt are sparse and, and indirect. But if we piece together from the sources we've seen, the continuity from the story of the forefathers in Bereshit, the position of belief that B'nai Israel take when they hear that God, has, that God intends to redeem them, their willingness to offer the Pesach sacrifice, and all of these are enhanced, <clears throat> are enhanced by the empathy, that by the empathy of the reader, the empathy created by their suffering, these create an overall positive impression. An entirely different perspective on B'nai Israel in Egypt is offered hundreds of years later by the prophet Yechezkel. Yechezkel prophesies before and just after the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, he goes out with the nation. He's one of the exiled. And most of his prophecies, the, the, most of the years of his prophecy are delivered in exile. And in chapter 20 in Yechezkel, a delegation comes to Yechezkel and questions God's decision to punish the nation. In fact, they question the validity of the covenant with God now that he's given up on them. If God has given up on us, what makes us, what holds us to continue to be loyal to his, to his breach, to his covenant? Since God has abandoned us, since God has abandoned them, they no longer feel bound by the covenant. Yechezkel responds to this group with a harsh message describing the nation's recurring betrayal. In source 9, we read in chapter 20, verse 4, Will you judge them? Then let them know the abominations of their ancestors. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am Hashem, your God. But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. Not one of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I thought I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. The, the prophet is saying here that God's intent was to utterly destroy B'nai Israel in Egypt because they were idol worshippers. But I acted for the sake of my name, so I led them out of the land of Egypt and I brought them out into the wilderness. Idol worship by B'nai Israel, B'nai Israel in Egypt as idol worshippers, becomes a recurring theme throughout Yosefer Yechezkel, with harsh descriptions such as in chapter 20, verse 18 in your source sheets, I said to their children in the wilderness, do not follow the statutes of, their, of your parents, nor observe their ordinances, nor defile yourself with their idols. Or in chapter 23, verse 19, where things keep getting harsher and harsher, yet she increased her whorings, remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of Egypt. Whorings referring to the loyalty to a variety of gods. Yechezkel describes a nation steeped in idolatry in the depths of the immorality of Egypt. According to this perspective, the Yechezkel perspective, B'nai Israel and Egypt are characterized as neck deep in idolatry, and God, in fact, pulls them out of Egypt just before it's too late, despite his inclination to utterly destroy them in Egypt. So they're in a dark, dire spiritual state when God decides to redeem them before it's too late. Yechezkel doesn't deny that B'nai Israel were enslaved and suffering in Egypt. This is implied by the fact that they're redeemed. But he also doesn't seem to empathize with B'nai Israel. He doesn't empathize with a nation enslaved. He doesn't empathize with, empathize with them despite the fact that they're oppressed. He doesn't empathize with them despite the fact that they're suffering. There's something about Yechezkel's description that's hard to stomach. Even if B'nai Israel were idol worshippers in Egypt, let's say we, we, we accept Yechezkel's assumption that B'nai Israel were idol worshippers in Egypt. 
The text in Shemot seems to be satisfied with their description as a suffering nation. If they were idol worshippers, Shemot seems to be willing to absolve them by omitting any mention of Avodah Zarah. So why does Yechezkel choose to slander them? But Yechezkel is not the first to describe B'nai Israel as idol worshippers while they're in Egypt. This description appears previously already in the book of Yehoshua, specifically in Yehoshua chapter 24, chapter Kafdalad. If you open your Tanakhs to chapter 24 in Yehoshua, at the end of an era of conquest and settling the land, Yehoshua gathers the nation and reviews their history in order to present them with a choice. In Perak Kafdalad, Yehoshua Kafdalad, Yehoshua chapter 24. Then Yehoshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Yehoshua said to all the people, Thus says Hashem, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors lived beyond the Euphrates, Terach, the father of Avraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father, Avraham, from across the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his offspring, and I gave him Yitzchak. And to Yitzchak, I gave Yaakov and Esav. I gave Esav the hill country of Seir to possess. But Yaakov and his sons went down to Egypt. If the story sounds familiar, if the story sounds familiar, it's because it's the history leading up to Yitziat Mitzrayim that's incorporated in our Pesach Haggadah. But whereas the Haggadah stops here and then goes to other sources to fill in the gaps, to fill in the rest of the story, Yehoshua continues. And we read in verse 5 in Pasuke, Then I sent Moshe and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in its midst, and afterwards I brought you out. And goes on to give them the land. Let's skip to verse 13. I gave you a land for which you had not labored, and towns that you had not built. And you settled in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive yards that you did not plant. And now, with a history lesson seemingly over, Yehoshua presents B'nai Israel, he presents the nation before him with a choice. But he throws in a twist on the story we know from Sefer Shmot. So let's look at verse 14 at Pasuk Yudalad. And now, therefore, revere Hashem and serve him wholeheartedly and faithfully. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Hashem. Yoshua offers this to them, but not as an order, but rather as a choice. Now, if you are unwilling to serve Hashem, choose this day whom you will serve. Which God do you want to serve? But Yoshua also gives them direction. But as for me and my household, he says at the end of the pasuk, Hashem. As for me and my household, we will serve Hashem. Yoshua's perspective on the forefathers in Egypt is similar to Yechezkel's. He reminds the nation that their fathers, his own father, were idol worshippers. Not only their ancestors before Avraham, that's where the Haggadah stops its story, but also in Egypt. Furthermore, Yehoshua sees the effects of this idol-worshipping upbringing in the nation standing before him, a generation that he himself raised and led to this point. And Yehoshua offers them a choice. He says, who wants to worship Hashem and who wants to continue worshipping other gods? The people following the example of their great leader, have no doubts. Immediately, without hesitation, they offer an uplifting response. In verse 16, then the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake Hashem to serve other gods. For it is Hashem, our God, who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who performed great wonders before our eyes, and he protected us along all the way that we went in the desert and among all the peoples through whom we passed 
and Hashem drove out all the nations and the Emirate who inhabited the land before us. And they end with a statement, an unequivocal statement. We too will serve Hashem, for he is our God. The nation has no doubts. Isn't this every leader's dream, every parent's dream, every teacher's dream, to hear unequivocal loyalty to the values toward which you raised your contingents? But shockingly, this effusive and heartfelt response is not met by any enthusiasm by, Yeh- with, by Yehoshua. He, it's met with no encouragement by Yehoshua. Instead, Yehoshua discourages the nation, just like a bait dean discourages someone who wants to convert to Judaism. And they say, it's too difficult. The challenges are too great. The nation says, we too will serve Hashem, for he is our God. And take a look at Yehoshua's response in verse 19. But Yehoshua said to the people, you cannot serve Hashem. That's how Yehoshua responds. They say, we want to serve God. Yehoshua says to the people, you cannot serve Hashem, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake Hashem and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. The people respond to Yehoshua's warning with the same enthusiasm they showed before. In verse 21, and the people said to Yehoshua, no, we will serve Hashem. What's the meaning of this strange response by Yehoshua? And how does it relate to the characterization of B'nai Israel in Egypt? It's important to remember that when Yehoshua relates to the nation in, to Bnei Israel in Egypt, to Bnei Israel, um, uh, to his the ancestors in Egypt as idol worshippers. This is not a distant reflection like what we saw in Yechezkel. This is an especially significant counterperspective to Shemot, since Yehoshua is not speaking from this distance of time. In fact, Yehoshua grew up in Egypt, and he's an eyewitness to the events that he describes. Yehoshua himself was part of the generation that left Egypt. And so he's talking from firsthand experience. Even so, or especially so, there's something that doesn't sit well with Yehoshua's reflection on his own father, his own grandfather, on the household and the community that he grew up in. If Shmot was willing to overlook the idolatry, why bring it up? Why offer a negative perspective on Bnei Israel? In a sense, this is even more jarring than Yechezkel. Yechezkel is speaking from a distance of time, lacking that close personal connection to the people being discussed. Whereas Yoshua is speaking about the community that he himself grew up in. But even worse, whereas Yechezkel is speaking to a nation that proved to have followed the path of their idolatrous ancestors, the generation that Yehoshua is addressing now is in such a good place. Consider their unequivocal response to the choice that he presents them. Yoshua knows this people. He knows how they're going to respond. He raised them. He led them to this point. So why look back? The nation's in such a good place. Why look back on the past, on the history of his own people, on their shared history? And he's along with them, one of the people who grew up in Egypt. Why look back with a critical eye? Why judge his own nation, the nation standing before him, with unyielding loyalty to God so harshly? In order to answer this question, I'd like to take a look at a text that presents both perspectives, the one in Shemot and the one offered later by the prophets, side by side. A famous Midrashic motif that might be on your minds when raising the question of who are B'nai Israel in Egypt, of the character of B'nai Israel in Egypt, credits the nation with maintaining their unique identity despite the state of slavery and oppression in a foreign land. This concept appears with variations in several Midrashic compilations, but the earliest text listing the elements by which B'nai Israel distinguish themselves from their surroundings appears in the Mechilta, in source, 11, uh, in source 11 in your source sheets. It's a very, very long text, so I, I, only brought, um, I only brought some of it, but definitely a worthwhile read for later. And the Mechilta opens with a question. 
The background for this question is that on the 10th of Nisan, God commands Ben Israel to take a lamb for the Pesach offering four days before they're commanded to slaughter that lamb. And Moshe commands the nation, Vihaya lachem lemishmirit, and it shall be under your care. You have to take this lamb and you have to take care of it. And so the Mechilta poses a question about this verse. And it shall be under your care, Vihaya lachem lemishmirit. Why did he order that the Pesach lamb should be taken four days before its slaughter? One answer is offered by Rabbi Matya ben Kharash. And he says like this, Rabbi Matya ben Kharash used to say, Behold, it says, I passed by you and looked upon you and saw you. And behold, your time was the time of love. Matya ben Kharash brings a pasuk from Yechezkel, not from the parkim that we read. And God looks around and sees that the time has arrived for the fulfillment of the oath which HaKadosh Baruch Hu had sworn to Avraham to deliver his children. But they did not have mitzvot to perform by which to merit redemption. So Matya ben Harash suggests that the reason for taking the lamb four days early, the reason that Bnei Israel were offered a few mitzvot that relate to Korban Pesach, was that God saw that the time of redemption had arrived, but also that Bnei Israel were lacking merit by which to be redeemed. So the Mechilta continues, therefore, God assigned them two commandments, the commandment of the Pesach sacrifice and the commandment of circumcision, which they should perform so they can be worthy of redemption. Going back to the perspectives on the characterization of Bnei Israel in Egypt, according to Matya ben Harash, they were undeserving of redemption. But this is far from the evil characterization of Bnei Israel as idol worshippers that we saw in Yechezkel and that we saw in Yehoshua. But the Midrash goes on and challenges this initial position. If you look at the next text, at the next paragraph, Rabbi Eliezer HaKapar Rabbi says, Did Israel not have four mitzvot that the whole world is not worthy of? That they were not suspect of illicit sexual relations, nor of slander, nor did they change their names, nor did they change their language. Rabbi Eliezer HaKapar seems disturbed by this characterization of Bnei Israel having no merit. And he states that the value of maintaining their identity as a people, their tribal identity, should certainly have been enough to merit them redemption. It's important to note that while the Midrash refers to these values with the word mitzvot, good deeds or benevolent acts, these elements do not indicate devotion to God. They do not indicate some sort of moral standing. Rather, they are features that highlight a sense of community and a sense of identity. Not changing names and language are clear features of distinguishing one as part of a community and maintaining an identity. But they have no specific relation to the divine moral and religious expectations that are described in Bereshit that are foundational to God's relationship with the forefathers in Bereshit. Similarly to the language and the, and the names, in another context, avoiding promiscuity might be perceived as a moral position. But bundled in with these other elements, it seems more likely that this is another feature of loyalty to community. If I want to maintain my social standing, respecting the boundaries between myself and my neighbor's wife is crucial, as is avoiding Lashon Hara, avoiding slandering another person, backstabbing my neighbors. One cannot betray one's friends and expect to be accepted in society. So what we have here is, in fact, a list of features that indicate that Bnei Israel maintained their tribal identity. They maintained their communal identity, and they stuck together. Maintaining distinct names, language, and a sense of loyalty to one's community can preserve a separate identity. But these are not evidence of superior morality, and they're not evidence of loyalty to God. The Midrash goes on at length bringing evidence, um, evidence from, from the verses in Shemot, 
for these statements that B'nai Israel maintained their identity in Egypt. How do we know that they didn't say Lashon Hara? How do we know that they didn't change their names? But if they did, and they had all of this merit, and they had all the merit necessary to redeem them from Egypt, of course, the original question remains unresolved. And so the Midrash asks, why did they need additional merit of the Korban Pesach, of the, of the lamb being taken four days early, and of circumcision to prevent, to, to, uh, in order for them to deserve redemption? So let's go back to the Mechilta in the last paragraph. So why did he order that the Pesach lamb should be taken four days before its slaughter? Because Israel were immersed in idolatry in Egypt. And idolatry is weighted against all other mitzvot. The Mechilta essentially includes the two perspectives that we saw. The first one in Shemot and the later one in the Prophets. B'nai Israel have merit, they have mitzvot. And even through their years of slavery, even through their years of oppression, they managed to maintain their identity as a people, as a nation, as a family. And they managed to maintain an identity as the children of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, the righteous forefathers in Bereshit. The Mechilta also characterizes them as idol worshippers. What I think the Mechilta does here, by juxtaposing these two perspectives, by bringing the two perspectives side by side, is that it creates a distinction, it creates a divide between maintaining an identity as a people and loyalty to God. Gilad Hirschberger, professor of uh, psychology at IDC, has an extensive study on collective trauma and the social construction of meaning. And he writes there that for victims of collective trauma, such as a continual state of collective oppression, meaning is established by, and I quote, passing down culturally derived teachings and traditions that promote group preservation. He writes that, a tra that trauma fosters the sense of a collective self that is transgenerational, thereby promoting a sense of meaning. And he explains that the sense of a historical collective self increases group cohesion and group identification, and these create meaning. Over time, he says, collective trauma becomes the epicenter of group identity and the lens through which group members understand their social environment. So maintaining identity for is great for instilling meaning, and it's great for preserving self-value, and it's great for uh, preserving a collective value, especially in times of oppression. All of these are beneficial traits, but these have little to do with superior morality, and these have little to do with devotion for God. And this is the divide that the, is, that the Mechilta is trying to make. Understanding this divide created by the Mechilta, which is not at all, which is not at all obvious, I, I think, to us, that maintaining an identity as a nation is not equal to devotion to God might be at the core of Yehoshua's decision to highlight this view of B'nai Israel, the view of B'nai Israel as idol worshippers, instead of adopting the more lenient view of Sefer Shemot. So let's go back and consider what happens in Yehoshua Perak Kafdalad, in Yehoshua 24. Yehoshua gathers the nation at the end of his days. He gives them a brief history lesson. He highlights their roots as the offspring of an idol-worshipping people and offers them a choice. Who wants to commit to worshipping God? He also offers them some direction. As a leader, he says, as for myself and my household, we will, uh, we will worship God. The nation agrees enthusiastically, unequivocally. But Yoshua continues to be hesitant, and he explains that God is difficult, God is jealous, and God will not tolerate dual loyalty. He will not tolerate loyalty to other gods. The nation still wants in. The nation wants to worship God. And at this point, Yehoshua makes it very clear, after, they agree, after he argues with them, and they agree again, that there are prerequisites for the success of this relationship. They have to remove their idols. They have to admit that everything they're doing, they're doing by choice. And they have to sign a new covenant. He seems really hard on them, considering this is a God-fearing generation led masterfully by none other than Yehoshua himself. What is Yehoshua concerned about? 
Let's take another look at the response, at the nation's response to Yehoshua's call to serve Hashem. Look in Parakaf Dalet in chapter 24, verse 16. Then the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake Hashem to serve other gods. For it is Hashem, our God, who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who performed great wonders before our eyes. And he protected us along all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And Hashem drove out all the nations and the Emirate who inhabited the land before us. We too will serve Hashem, for he is our God. Twice they call Hashem our God, modeling themselves after Yehoshua, who says, I, we, myself and my family, we will worship our God. And the nation says, not just your God, it's our God. We, it's our God too. The nation seems to feel very connected to this idea of their God, our God. But what does their sense of identification with this God lean on? What does it depend on? It seems clear that their devotion has more to do with their sense of collective experience than it does with what God is, with what he represents. They center, look at the psukim, they center their sense of identity, not on loyalty to God as a nation, but rather on their collective experiences of God's great miracles. If we break down their response to Yehoshua, what is their identity centered on? For it is Hashem, our God, who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, Yitziat Mitzrayim, that's at the core of our belief in God. And they add, out of the house of slavery, Yoshua doesn't relate to them as slaves. Yoshua doesn't have that empathetic perspective, just like Yechezkel doesn't have the empathetic perspective, but they throw in the slavery, the collective trauma as slaves that Yehoshua omits. And who performed great wonders before our eyes. There's a sense of gratitude here, but again, the collective experiences of great miracles. He protected us along all the way, and of course the miracles in the desert where Hashem protects us. They ate the man, they have the trauma of the desert, they have the miracles of the desert. And Hashem drove out all the nations and the Emirate who inhabited the land. They have inheriting the land at the center of their collective experience and, of the, and at the center of their belief in God. And they conclude with an unequivocal statement, we too will serve Hashem, for he is our God. But what makes them, what makes him their God? Not their recognition that he's the one true God that Avraham believed in before any miracles were performed for him, before he was helped by anybody, but rather their collective identity centered on the experience of miracles in recent history. Yehoshua hears the nation say this and Yehoshua is dissatisfied. He tells them, no, you cannot worship God. You cannot worship my God. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. After these warnings, B'nai Israel still insist in verse 21, we shall fear God and worship him. And even at this point, Yehoshua continues to warn them, you are witnesses for yourselves that you have chosen Hashem to serve him. This is your choice. Don't forget it's your choice. And they say we are witnesses. And he says, put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to Hashem, the God of Israel. And the people agree. And Yehoshua makes a renewed covenant, makes a covenant between the nation and God. So in order to understand why Yehoshua is being so hard on the nation, on the nation that he, that he led to this point, one that professes unyielding loyalty to God, we have to remember that Yehoshua lives and leads in a transitional era. Yehoshua has experienced it all. Yehoshua has experienced the slavery and the redemption. Yehoshua has experienced the uplifting encounter with God at Sinai, and he's experienced the disastrous journey through the desert. He experienced the death of one generation and saw the birth of another, a generation that does not know slavery and depression. This generation that he led became the effortless victors of the conquest of the promised land. And Yehoshua knows how easy it is to mistake loyalty to God with maintaining our identity as a nation especially when that identity centers on collective experiences. So Yehoshua looks out at the people and they're done with collective trauma. 
They're done with the great miracles. The time for peace has come. They're about to settle their land. They're about to settle into a quiet routine, raising their families, growing their crops, tending to their flocks. Right now they have living testimonies walking among them of God's great miracles. They themselves are a testimony to that. And if they're not, if they were born in the next generation, their fathers were and their siblings and their mothers and their grandparents. They have people living among them who still remember what it's like to be oppressed in Egypt, what it's like to be a slave in Egypt. They have people among them who have seen the sea split and that people among them whose fathers died in the desert and they saw the walls of Yericho fall. When you've seen all of that, when you've seen it all, it's easy to have a sense of conviction, the type of conviction and loyalty that we see in the nation's response to the shared history of the nation. And when Yoshua asks, who wants to worship God? The nation answers, we want to worship God. We want to worship the God of history. We want to worship the God of our collective identity. We want to worship the God of the miracles we saw. But history is fleeting and history is changing and miracles are not always in reach. What's not fleeting, what's timeless and eternal and dependent is only God himself. And what Yehoshua tells the nation before him that wants to profess their unyielding devotion to God is that identity is great, but what they're signing up for is loyalty to the God of Avraham. The nation standing before him is all there, but how do we transfer that sense of identification to the next generations? The collective memories and stories are important. In fact, they're essential to preserve the sense of collective identity. But without loyalty to the thing that's at the core, without submission to God, regardless of history, this is not lasting. It's only a matter of time before the collective memory fades into tranquility, into the tranquility of day-to-day -day life, and we have to be reminded through trauma, once again, who we are. And so Yehoshua, who is a wildly successful leader, in part for this foresight, um, is the end of his days are, are summed up at the end of Sefer Yehoshua, at the end of Book of Yehoshua, the end of cha this chapter that we're reading, chapter Kafdalad. And if you look at verse 29, verse 29 describes Yehoshua's death. After these things, Yehoshua, son of Nun, the servant of Hashem, died, being 110 years old. And in verse 31, we read, Israel served Hashem all the days of Yehoshua. All the days of Yehoshua. Yehoshua is the only leader who, achieve, who achieves absolute loyalty to God in his time. This is more than can be said about any other leader in history, any other leader in Tanakh, including the greatest of all leaders, including Moshe Rabbeinu. But Israel served Hashem all the days of Yehoshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Yehoshua and had known all the deeds that Hashem did for Israel. Not only does Yehoshua achieve absolute loyalty to God in his time, but also all the days of the elders who outlived Yehoshua, another generation forward. That's how successful Yehoshua was in his education of the people and his leadership of the people. This unwavering loyalty and commitment to God is astounding. And then we turn the page to Sefer Shoftim and we see that slowly, as the memory of the great miracles dissipate, so does the loyalty to God begin to waver. And this is hinted to in a subtle caveat in this most uplifting verse that we just read. Let's read it again. Israel served Hashem all the days of Yehoshua. That's unequivocal. And all the days of the elders who outlived Yehoshua, okay, and had known all the deeds that Hashem did for Israel. Yehoshua's foresight that identity is not enough was prudent. As long as those living testimonies to God's miracles were walking among the people, they maintained their sense of loyalty to God. They managed to stretch that out another generation. But the memory ultimately faded, and Yehoshua's sad prediction came true in the next generations. It's hard not to see our own times reflected in these texts in the in the challenges foreseen by Yehoshua in the transitional generation that we live in. We too live in a transitional era with testimonies of the great historical events of our time walking among us. 
it's hard to deny a sense of Jewish identity when faced with Holocaust survivors' numbers still tattooed on their arms, or who, uh, or the, when those who walk among us, um, there are those who walk among us who fought in the great wars of Israel, who built a country from nothing, who saw a desolate land growing into a, a, viv a vibrant, progressive country. But my own grandchildren won't have the first-hand accounts of the horror, nor of the great miracles of our time. And those two, unfortunately, have to go together. Horror and great miracles go together. Once again, history will fade and memories fade. And Yehoshua's concern resonates, as do the challenges that he foresaw. To ensure that identity lasts, that our Jewish identity, that our tribal identity, our identity as a family, lasts beyond the scope of historical events because these fade. And to understand that the only way to create a lasting national identity is to ensure that the foundation is eternal and that the foundation is timeless through commitment to God, not to the God of history, not to the God of miracles, but to the one true God, to Avraham's God, to Yitzchak's God, to Yaakov's God. And to pronounce, like Yehoshua does, Hashem, as for me and my household, I will worship God. So we saw here conflicting perspectives on B'nai Israel in Egypt. One that ignores the specific circumstances of B'nai Israel and expects them to take full responsibility for their future. No excuses, no empathy, so that the lessons learned are unequivocal and forward-looking. And another, the perspective of Shmot, that omits any mention of B'nai Israel being immersed in idol worship and highlights God's empathy and his love for his nation. This perspective, the Shmot perspective, is willing to ignore the faults and failings of God's beloved nation and look kindly upon B'nai Israel in their suffering, in their hour of need. Anyone here who is a parent or has a parent or a sibling or a spouse or any type of human, meaningful human relationship knows how pure and complete the perspective of love sometimes is, especially in times of coping with distress, and how all-consuming the perspective of disappointment or betrayal or resentment is to the exclusion of all positive emotion. Each of these stands entirely on their own. And so as readers of Tanakh in Surround Sound, we hear these different voices of conflicting messages and they become this complex symphony that help us come closer to understanding the Torah, closer to understanding God, and mirrors the human experience, which is always complex and always has to be broken down to these more basic components in order to be clarified, in order to be understood. Thank you very much.